Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. As we embrace the sustained joy of the Easter season, we invite you to join us every week on this show where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We're also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have a star-studded show for you today. We are happy to have Curtis Martin with us. He's the founder of Focus. Before, we've talked to a, men, a member of Focus a couple of weeks ago on the show. It's a huge organization that mobilizes on college campuses across the nation to reach Catholic students who are yearning to for ways to grow in their faith during their college years to stay connected to their faith. Curtis just wrote a book called Foundations for Discipleship, so we're going to hear all about that book. First, we have Lila Rose, another superstar. She is the founder of Live Action and director of Live Action. She is with us to discuss her new book, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. Additionally, it's great to have my TCA colleague and friend, Maureen Ferguson, with me to join me in this first interview of Lila Rose. Welcome to the show, Maureen. I'm such a big fan of the guests that we're about to welcome to the show, Lila Rose, uh, the founder of Live Action and the author of a new book called Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. And in Fighting for Life, Lila Rose gives her readers really a raw and a very real look into her personal life and her public activism. And she's really encouraging to others in, uh, in their fight for a better world. And of course, her organization Live Action has a weekly reach of 14 to 18 million people, which is just incredible. Talking about the many things that, that impact life Life and babies and women. So welcome to the show, Lila. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be, be on. Lila, lots of our listeners know all about you, but I'm going to assume some of them don't. So I thought we could start with you giving us a little, a little bio of yourself. You started out in this arena of the, of the pro-life uh, struggle that, that Maureen and I are in and so many of our listeners. When you were very young, you were only 15. How did that come about and, and what did you start out doing? Sure. So I am from I'm from San Jose, California, one of eight kids. So grew up in a very pro-life family um, by nature. Just the fact that my parents were so open to life um, was raised evangelical, didn't become Catholic until college when I had a uh, just a deepening of understanding of faith and God and uh, became Catholic as a college sophomore at UCLA. But when I started Live Action, it was after a number of encounters I had where I felt very strongly uh, about abortion. I found out about it. I discovered there were 2,300 abortions a, a day. At the time, there were actually over 3,000 abortions. The, the abortion rates declined, but 3,000 children were being killed daily by abortion when I was first discovering the issue. And I came across Mother Teresa's words about it, and she had this incredible moral clarity. And I was a young teen and mother Teresa called abortion the greatest destroyer of peace and looking at what abortion does to that 
developing embryo, uh, this newly formed arms and legs, this newly formed body, and how an abortion tears that child limb from torso and into pieces and destroys an innocent life. I felt strongly convicted that this was the issue. I mean, I, I society was largely ignoring it. We were permitting it and accepting it. But I saw this as the greatest human rights issue of the day. So that inspired me to start live action. I was interested in other causes too, but ultimately I thought this is the leading cause of the day and I need to do something. I didn't know what to do, but it was as simple as educating myself and learning more and then getting together with some friends to talk about how can we reach other young people in our community. You know, Lila, I love and I admire your work so much because you are in the business of changing hearts and minds on abortion and especially the minds of young people. And I'm someone who has worked for so many years in the legislative and political side of the pro-life movement. But, you know, in Washington and in state capitals, we're only as successful as people like you are in changing hearts and minds. So so thank you for all that you do. I'm just such a, a big admirer. And so congratulations on the book, because I think, does it come out today? Is today the big day? You've got, you've got a new baby. We want to ask you about a new baby, a new book. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so the book comes out today. I do have a one-year-old and we're actually expecting our second. So a family is oh. growing, which is so exciting. Um, but I was, I, was, I was joking that having a baby, I mean, the birth and labor and delivery obviously was very hard. And, you know, we all have our birth stories, but uh, writing the book was even harder than delivering a baby. So I, I know every author is different, but I was like, wow, this is like its own baby birthing, <laughs> birthing this book and getting it out there. But I'm so, I'm so glad to have it out now finally and, and I can share with other people well we want to hear all about the book but since you mentioned giving birth did did becoming a mother did becoming a mother and I know the answer is going to be yes but maybe you can tell us how did the did becoming a mother grow your heart in the pro-life direction and, and how did it do that it definitely I mean how can it not it made me more passionate and um, just I'm more heartbroken, really. I talk about heartbreak a lot in the book, actually, and the power of heartbreak to transform us for better and to help us um, in our work to serve others and respond to important causes. Um, but becoming a mother, that heartbreak is even deeper because now every child is my child in a new way. You know, once you're a mother, you all of a sudden sense universally um, other children as yours, and you're you know you see the total dependency and innocence of your child, and you just think about all those children that don't get protection and don't get the love they deserve. Um, and it's just, yeah, it strengthened my resolve, really. I mean, I talk about this a lot in the book, actually, because when you're a mom, I mean, and I'm just entering this journey, uh, it's so overwhelming. It, there's so much to it. it. It requires all of us. I mean, physically, as a mother of a, of a pre-born child, it requires all of us. And that's beautiful. I mean, that's love, asking all of us. And we are giving so much of ourselves to our kids. But that doesn't mean we leave the fight, um, whether their cultural or political battles, or they're both, to end abortion or to help our nation be more moral or to fight for our values. Um, we have to do, um, do this fight as mothers, recognizing that our first calling and cause is our family. And so I think becoming a mother has also clarified for me even more. I already knew it, but it's living it as different, that my first calling is my husband, my marriage, my children. Um, and from that position and from that love, I can go out and keep fighting for life around me. And I, I just want to like honor mothers. And I, I talk about this in the book, the power of families. That That is the future. You know, politics won't change until people change and people change by families 
because of strong, healthy, flourishing families. So I'm so, I so commend you know, mothers and um, I know you have kids and I just think it's, it's so essential to the future of everything we're fighting for. It's exactly right. And, and congratulations on number two. I don't think I knew that. That's such joyful news. And I always say the only thing better than having one baby is having two babies. No, <laughs> having two is having three and so on and so on. Um, but anyway, back to this issue or um, the concept of heartbreak. And you talk about that a lot in your book, that transformation begins with heartbreak. And I thought that was such an interesting way of looking at it and such a powerful way to reach young people, to encourage them to find their passion. Start by with what breaks your heart. You know, maybe it's victims of human trafficking. Maybe it's the way Down syndrome children are undervalued. Or um, so, so tell us a little bit more about how you came to that idea. It, it's really an interesting approach. Well, it was what happened to me. So when I was a young girl, I found out about abortion. I saw a victim of abortion, uh, photography. So you actually can see the imagery that was taken in the abortion clinic of children after they've been killed by abortion in the first trimester. And I was just totally heartbroken by it. And the more I learned about abortion, the more heartbroken I became. And there were other things, too, that I struggled with. And I talk about not just heartbreak over injustice, but our own struggles, our own wounds. And I had a really um, rough time in high school for a season, struggling with mental illness, struggling with self-esteem, um, self-harm behaviors, depression. And I shared that, too, because it's, a, it's another kind of heartbreak that's the consequence of our woundedness as humans. So we can have our hearts broken over injustice, but we also are broken because we are wounded by original sin. And and that has its beauty too, because in, in overcoming and receiving the healing we need from God, we're better equipped to help and serve others. And so in that sense, all the wounds and struggles I've been through, the heartache I've experienced has equipped me for the fight for life. And that's what I encourage any reader to do is look at your own wounds, your own struggles, your own mistakes, and then understand what breaks your heart, what injustices break your heart. These are Northern lights. These are guiding uh, lights for us in our understanding of our own calling and these equip us to step out into a battle that sometimes is very hard cultural battles or you know you know bravely speaking up to friends and family um, getting involved in uh, causes that are controversial there's a kind of heartbreak that we run into over and over again in the pro-life community which is the heartbreak of women who've had abortions and they are walking around after these abortions so wounded in their in their innermost souls sometimes they don't know it they don't know they're wounded they don't know where the, the pain is coming from. But I have found that some of these women do tremendous good when they are able to channel that heartbreak into uh, a passion for, for saving other women from, from that pain. And I have met so many fabulous women who have said to themselves, I am going to, I'm going to make sure that as, as few women as possible will, will endure this kind of, this kind of heartbreak um, by making this terrible mistake. Has, has that been your experience too, Lila? It absolutely has. It's beautifully said. And I, there's a chapter in the book called Learn to Grieve. And you mentioned, you know, some of these women, I mean, so many women and men, um, and it's many in our own families and our communities or churches have uh, been, have had abortions or abortion somehow in their past, even a recent past. And if you don't see abortion for what it is and the, the death of a child, the killing of a child, you can't really grieve. 
Um, and our society says abortion is good. And so they tell women not to grieve after abortion. They say it's good. You should feel relieved, you know, move on with your life. But there's that latent grief because a, a life was taken. And this was a family member. This was a son or daughter. And so that's a key, too, is letting ourselves grieve and learning to grieve the losses, because that is an essential step to healing. But to do that, I also talk about exposing evil. I mean, we have to call evil, evil, um, wrong, wrong, right, right. If we live in the lie, if we keep lying to ourselves and saying that the injustice is not an injustice, that this wasn't a baby, the abortion didn't take a life, then we're actually trapping ourselves. You know, we aren't able to heal individually or collectively. And so that's why speaking the truth and uh, knowing the truth is so essential to the healing that's so desperately needed. Lila, something else you talk about in the book really caught my eye. You talk about the importance of bouncing back from mistakes that we make. And I thought that was really good advice for young people today because so much has been written about how this generation is very risk averse. They're not willing to take risks out of fear of making mistakes. So can you tell us how you advise young women to bounce back and to grow from failures and mistakes? Of course. And I think when you're fighting for a cause, especially if it's an unpopular one. When you're fighting, getting involved in a cause or a calling, that requires risking ourselves. I mean, love and love is a risk. Standing up for what's right is a risk. And concretely speaking, in today's culture, that can be really hard if you're a student in high school or college. And um, it sometimes feels easier to just not say anything, but that's not how we grow. That's not how we change the world. Um, so you have to have this capacity for risk. And to do so, it really doesn't make it fun or easy but it is essential that we don't see our failures or mistakes, which are inevitable, as disqualifiers. And so I talk a lot about my mistakes in the book and some of the failures, the most embarrassing moments, not just the highlight reel, but the bloopers reel of some of my work. And I did that very intentionally because I want people to see that, you know, you might look at somebody out there making a difference and be like, oh, they're, they don't, they have it all figured out. We usually don't make mistakes in public. Sometimes we do, um, meaning we don't post it to our social media. <laughs> uh, we may, might make the mistake in public, but we don't advertise it afterwards. But that's human for us to make mistakes. And it actually teaches us a lot to be able to understand what to do differently next time. And we need to be willing to forgive each other and forgive ourselves. And I think that can be hard for people, especially you know, especially I've noticed a lot of young women, but by sharing my story of that and also by recognizing that, you know, God loves us. Like God, you, we are his sons and daughters and realizing our dignity and our worth makes it easier to risk ourselves and makes it easier to bounce back after a mistake. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-host today, Maureen Ferguson. And we're chatting with the great Lila Rose of Live Action about her new book called Fighting for Life, which is her first book out this week. And that's a very exciting thing, Lila, to have your own book out. And I wonder if you have advice in the book um, for people today and not just young people because we're all feeling it in this terrible environment of cancel culture where it almost feels like we are putting everything on the line when we dare to step outside the dominant um, narrative out there of what makes a good life. 
So I would say I do talk about this and there can feel you can feel just afraid of speaking out because of the consequences and the pushback. But I think it's important for us to really meditate on our heroes. A lot of this is mindset. Who are your heroes? Who are the people you admire? Maybe in history, um, those that have sparked change, those that have made a difference. And what did they sacrifice? Because I will guarantee you, and, and I talk about some of my heroes, they went up against terrible challenges, not just people making fun of them, but people trying to kill them or risking their entire lives for those that they're fighting for. And so I think having perspective on what other people by God's grace have been able to do and asking for the help we need. I think that's the other key here. We're not meant to do this alone. We are not. Sometimes we feel alone, but that's temporary. We're meant to have people around us to guide us. We're meant to have mentors. I talk about the power of mentors, people like a spiritual director or a coach to help guide us through our fight, you know, our, if we're founding an organization or we're getting involved in a new cause, or even we're a student trying to figure out what to do with our lives. We need people to guide us. And then we need team. We need somebody around us who is in the fray with us. You know, what, that one friend who's at the pro-life group with you, um, that one other friend who believes in living a morally upright life and is fighting for that. And you want to fight with them to live that life and, and be the best person you can be. There's a lot of power in that where we still can feel fears. We can still feel um, the pressure around us, but we have this special power from the people that are in our corner and from the, the trust that we have in God who's guiding us and giving us the strength that we need. Lila, one of the things I love about your messaging is just this, that you take a more holistic approach to the pro-life movement. You talk about the root causes of abortion. You get into issues of sexuality and family and marriage. And yet for young people today, the dating culture is so fraught and <laughs> in so many ways. So what message do you have for, for young people, maybe women in particular, who are kind of disillusioned by just the overly sexualized culture we live in and all that confusion over dating and 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 do you get into that in the book? I didn't get to that. Do you get into into that in the book? I do have a chapter called Find Your Heart where I do get into that because I think that's so integral to our calling and our causes we're fighting for. You know, our personal relationships, our vocation, you know, our desire for marriage or for love, like this is very connected to our ability to go out there and blaze a trail, you know, go out there and make a difference. And so I talk about, you know, years of dating and some of the heartache over that, even some of my childhood wounds that impacted my dating relationships. And ultimately, um, my, and my parents' marriage and what I learned from their marriage, and then ultimately finding my husband, Joe, and um, the gift that my husband, Joe, was and what I was looking for in a man and how I looked for what I was looking for in a man. So that is in the book. Um, it's not the focus of the book, but I think it's still really important because when we discover our cause... We ultimately are also looking for our vocation. And when I did get married, um, that became my ultimate cause. I mean, my ultimate cause is to try to get to heaven with my husband and our family and bring as many people as possible um, to be with God. And the, the pro-life fight is just a, a, a beautiful expansion of that, of that, you know, the, that first calling. And so 
anybody who's listening, if you're a young person and you're in a dating pool, have hope um, by focusing to, on becoming the person you are meant to be, by becoming the best you can be. And I have a lot of the tools in the book for things that I've learned in that process. You are preparing yourself and God has a plan. God has a plan. And, you know, having the standards, having the sensibility, having the understanding of what marriage is and what you're looking for, you're already light years beyond um, so many people who are struggling in this culture and, and unsure and confused. And you are you are on your path. You're on your path and God will God will give you what you need and he will guide you. Lila, you wrote something in your book that uh, was very interesting to me. You called it imposter syndrome. And I'm just going to read a little line from, from your book. You may feel like an imposter when you begin your mission, but you aren't. You're a brave soul who is willing to stand up even when others won't and give the best of what you have. Why do you think understanding that syndrome and how we feel like imposters uh, helps people overcome it? Because I think we all have our insecurities about why we don't have what it takes. We don't know enough. Maybe we think we're not smart enough. We're not gifted enough. We don't have enough time. Um, we're too busy. We, there's all these reasons why we would be an imposter, we might think, to step out and become an activist for, for, for life or start an organization or join a ministry or get involved in another organization. And I, I talk specifically about that because it's so important to recognize that we're all imposters, you know, <laughs> um, when we get started. When you first start, you're just learning. And that's why you have to give yourself permission to just start. Just do one thing today. Um, one thing today to pursue the cause that's burning in your heart, to learn about it, to talk to someone about it, to, you know, call someone about it, email someone about it. It's one small step at a time. Nothing is built in a night. Nothing is built in a day. It takes really our lifetime. And the key is the momentum. The key is the one step at a time. It's getting up after a fall. It's getting up despite a mistake. And before you know it, you're on this incredible adventure that God has brought you on, which is what happened to me. You know, that's my story and what I tell in the book. And I, I would have never imagined when I was first starting live action at 15 and having so many insecurities and struggles um, and continuing on in college and starting investigative reporting, that live action would be a global leader for the pro-life movement, that we'd have um, the staff and the resources and the millions of people we reach each week. I, I, I couldn't have imagined it, but I just took that next step. And that's what I want to encourage you if you're listening. Take that next step. Don't be afraid. If you feel your fear, that's okay. Then just keep going anyways. And you will see what God can do with your yes, with your willingness to step forward and say, here I am, do with me as you will. I, I want to fight for this cause. Lila, I can't wait to have my three daughters listen to this episode because you are just so inspirational. And it's it's amazing, you know, nowadays we're all so upset about big tech and how it's become, you know, we're talking about cancel culture and such, but yet you find a way to harness this powerful force for the good. Um, and so I checked with my daughters before interviewing you um, to ask, what should I ask you? And I do have one daughter who's named Rose, so she has always had a natural affinity to you. But um, but one of my girls wants me to ask you, could, without using religion, could you just give an elevator pitch argument for what's the best reason to be pro-life? 
Of course. Um, and hi to Rose <laughs> and your <laughs> other daughter. Um, that's awesome. Listen, being pro-life is not a religious position. It's a human position. We know because of science when life, human life begins. It begins at the moment of fertilization when a uh, egg is fertilized by a sperm and you have a unique individual single cell embryo. And that child just needs time and nourishment to grow. They have two parents, biological parents, and they are a unique individual human life. And so if you are against the intentional killing of an innocent human being, which I think everybody is. I mean, I've talked to people of all religions, atheists, agnostics. Most everyone says, yes, I oppose. It's morally wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And if you look at the science and acknowledge that life in the womb is a unique individual human being, this is not, um, you don't suddenly become human at birth. Then you have to accept and you have to realize that abortion is the intentional act to destroy the life of an innocent human being. And that's why no matter what your background is or your worldview or your religion, we can all oppose abortion as an abuse of the first human right, which is life. That's a beautiful thing that you can rattle that off. And I'm sure everyone's taking notes so that they can say it in the elevator next time they're asked. But <laughs> it's so perfectly true, Lila. And it is. I, I love that you start with saying it's a non-religious position. And, you know, I'm a parent of, of five children, some of them already grown. And I do feel that to be pro-life is, is to, to help your children be pro-life is the most protective, both boys and girls, the most protective thing that you can do for them is to, to drill into them that kind of respect, not only for other human beings, but for the sexual act, which produces other human beings. And, and, and I love that you um, have found this wonderful niche, that you reach out to so many people and, and have changed so many minds and hearts, especially young minds and hearts who need it so badly as they face a world that every day seems to become a little more coarse and, and a little more a, a little harder to live in as a as, as a person of a, who wants respect and dignity for everyone well there's so much hope that I have because while the world seems very coarse there's a lot of beautiful things happening there's a lot of good and maybe it doesn't make the media headlines maybe it's not what you always see on social media because I think outrage and division is what gets the attention in the room. Um, but there's so much good happening. I see it every day. People that are pro becoming pro-life, people that are finding faith, people that are um, recognizing they're not happy with the culture's uh, creed on sex and dating. It makes them miserable that they want authentic love, like they want commitment and uh, responsibility in a loving, lifelong marriage. So there's so much good happening. Don't be afraid. <laughs> um, God is with you. And um, don't be also ashamed of your faith. I mean, yes, you can make the pro-life case from any religion, any any sort of philosophy angle. But ultimately, our faith is a treasure. And uh, we should be proud of it and excited to share it. And um, I talk about that in the book, too, you know, finding faith, how I found faith and encouraging people to discover God. Because at the end of the day, what is this all about? You know, we have one life, we're going to die. What happens next? Um, where does the morality come from that we are looking towards? You know, what is our North Star? And at the end of the day, I think we have to wrestle with that and and, and find our place before God. And I think um, that's a secret to, to discovering who we are and really discovering happiness and, and the joy of uh, living out the life we're, we're meant to live. Lila, 
We are so grateful that you joined us today. Your life, your work are so inspiring. We wish you every success as you continue your work and your mission at Live Action. We hope to have you back soon. And we urge our listeners, don't forget to pick up Lila Rose's new book, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. Check it out at your favorite bookstore, Amazon, wherever you get your books. And make sure to check out liveaction.org for the latest news on the pro-life front. Thank you so much, Lila. Thank you so much, ladies. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are thrilled to have Curtis Martin with us, another superstar. Curtis A. Martin founded the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, FOCUS, in 1998. He holds a master's degree in theology and is the author of the best-selling book, Made for More. In 2011, Curtis was appointed to serve as a consultor to the Pontifical Council for Promoting New Evangelization. He and his wife, Michael Ann, live in Colorado. They've been blessed with nine children and five grandchildren so far. Curtis is out with a new book with Dr. Edward Sree called Foundations for Discipleship. Welcome to the show, Curtis. Gracie, always great to be with you and everybody that's listening on EWTN. This is fantastic. Oh, well, you know, we're huge fans of Focus here on EWTN um, on Conversations with Consequences. Me, personally, I've had three children in college so far, and they've all been they've all been impacted with by Focus, every single oh, one of them, God. and all in, I mean, really uh, positive ways, and I would probably, I would have to say probably uh, ways that will, you know, bear fruit forever, because these are such formational years, as I'm sure you agree, having been focused on these years for so long. Oh, yeah, it's a win or lose battle in many ways. I mean, the stats say that if you leave college as a practicing Catholic, you'll remain a practicing Catholic for the rest of your life. And if you don't, you may never come back. Wow. So it's really, we are playing for all the marbles. Wow, that's, I didn't know that statistic, but it makes a lot of sense because that, you know, so many of us Catholic parents, we, we try so hard for those first 18 years and then we send them off to college and we just sit back and pray. But I guess it's, it's there's more than prayer. There's also really wonderful people like like Focus taking good care of our, our kids as we send them off. Well, we'd never be able to do it without the prayers and the grace that comes from our Lord through those prayers and the sacraments. I mean, really, it is a work of grace and we are so reliant. I mean, I, I do believe believe it's the, the prayers and the tears of mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers that open up the storehouses of grace for us to be effective on campus. Oh, that's beautiful. That's 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 very inspiring. We shall all keep praying. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> and how what, what inspired you to start Focus? Well, you know, I was uh, like many of these young people, uh, I'm not young, but uh, when I was young, I was had drifted away from my faith. And uh, by the grace of God, came back to first faith in Christ, but not not the church, not the sacraments, and then later the fullness of faith in the Catholic Church. I then met a young woman who I eventually married who had traveled a very similar path. Both of us had been reached by evangelical Christians on the college campus, and we were very struck that there really wasn't a Catholic 
outreach. There were Newman centers in Catholic churches within walking distance, sometimes right on campus, but there was no outreach to go get the students who weren't coming to the centers. So focus was really a, a response to that reality of wanting to, to reach as many as we could at that critical juncture. So focus sees itself uh, in many ways, and, and this is the way my children have experienced it, I must say, as a, a step between the students uh, walking around campus and that beautiful Newman Center, which they may never be inspired to walk into and see what's being offered. Yeah, that's what's changed in the last generation. Young Catholics are not walking to the Newman Center in large percentages. And so we really need to go walk to them first and meet them, you know, on the volleyball courts or the basketball courts or the quad and engage them in friendship, share some meals with them. And then as they ask us what's important to us, we can walk them back to the Newman Center or Catholic Church that's right there. And it's been an amazing way to engage students where they are and draw them back into their practice of the faith. We actually had a focus missionary recently on the show. His name was Anthony Cirillo. He was so charming, and we loved well. we Good loved man. listening to all his stories. He's a young married a missionary, and they do right. this. He and his wife do this full time. He was so impressive. Is that the standard, or do you have different levels of membership? How does that work? Yeah, the core of our organization would be hiring recent college graduates. So you graduated May, we employ you uh, in late May. So we are in the process of welcoming over 200 new missionaries into our organization in the next couple of weeks, and they are recent college graduates. We train them, form them, and then send them out as teams with some veteran staff who already have some experience. And they serve, our typical team would be two, excuse me, four or five young people, frequently single, sometimes married. And they go out on, onto the campus. They become staff members of the Newman Center or the local church. And they start to share life with the college students. And the whole hope would be that those missionaries not only could reach students, but they could raise up student leaders, which will greatly magnify the outreach. I mean, exponentially increase the, the ability for us to reach more students by having not just our staff, but student leaders actively involved. And how long do these missionaries typically stay on board? Yeah, we ask for a two-year commitment. The average stay is about three and a half years. And uh, we're also going to say goodbye to almost 200 missionaries actually next week. Uh, they've been serving for two plus years. And they're going to go out. They're pursuing their vocations. They're going to grad school. And so we hope that they're going to have lifelong impact. It's our great hope. And it's in fact what we've seen that after they serve as missionaries, they become active Catholic leaders for the rest of their adult lives. How wonderful, Curtis, to hear that. I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed that there's so many wonderful young people in this country. <laughs> I know some of them personally, but I'm just so hopeful. And it's such a source of hope to hear that they actually exist in these numbers. No, it started as, you know, dozens, and then it was hundreds, and then thousands, and then tens of thousands. And now it's more than 100,000 young people. And we've been around for 22 years, so some not so young people. Just talking to one of our early staff members who just turned 45, which to me is still young, but uh, they're not uh, they're not 20 years olds anymore. And they're actually having tremendous impact in their parishes and their businesses. We've had hundreds of young people embrace religious life and the priesthood. And it's just been wonderful to watch God uh, draw them where he wa wherever he wants them to be. My family was very fortunate this past week. We had a priest of a Newman Center in Philadelphia. My son, my son's at the University of Pennsylvania, and, and he invited Father, his name is Father Remigio, to come visit with another another lay brother who lives at the Newman Center. And they, they told us a lot about focus and how important focus is to their work with the undergraduates. 
No, it's we, we the support we receive from the priests or from the bishops has been one of the true blessings that we have no control over. I mean, we, we can try to hire the right people and train them as effectively as possible and care for them. But we don't have any choice or any impact on who the bishop is or what his thoughts are about campus ministry. We don't have any uh, impact on what priests are going to put there. And the bishops have been so supportive and they've placed wonderful priests at our Newman centers and, and various Catholic churches that we serve. And we've actually done the research on this. The number one factor for the fruitfulness for our lay missionaries is how engaged and how joy-filled the priest is that, that they're serving. The priesthood is so, so important. Wow, yeah, I can see that. I can see how it would be. Uh, I can see it in action. I can see it in action with my own son who is so engaged with with, with the ministry there at, at Penn. Now, what about, so we were talking about college campuses and all of us know that colleges are not very open-minded. They're not tolerant places of uh, conservative thought, of traditional morality. What's it like trying to be uh, a missionary and as, as things get less and less tolerant? No, oh, and that uh, certainly has changed dramatically just in the last 20 22 years since we started. But I really think this new generation is bringing a new lens. Uh, it's not so much conservative. We want to go back to the 1950s and 1930s. They don't have any memory of the 1950s or mm-hmm. 1930s. They want a renewed world now. And so it is, they're willing to engage this culture with joy. Their friends often disagree with them, but they're still friends with them. And they're breaking down these barriers. A lot of the prejudice that exists on college campus in our culture today are people who don't have friends they disagree with. And then they vilify them. Mm. But when you develop friendships with people you disagree with, they may not agree with you right away, but it's really hard for them to vilify. And so as they're out on campus loving college students who may be very, very far away from Christ, very far away from the church, but they love them still. I mean, we have to imitate Christ. Christ loved us first. We're we're told in scriptures that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's for missionaries go first because Christ went first with them. And you just go out and love people. And some will convert and some won't. And and that's between them and God. It's our job to go out and love them and care for them. And that is breaking down barriers and just the prejudice is evaporating. It's been beautiful to watch. We were at a lot more campuses. We're only at about 180 and there are many, many hundreds more that we could be serving. But we're just getting started. You know, when you're talking to me about what Focus does and you say the word missionary, I get this image of a missionary, you know, going out to deepest, darkest Africa or some place that hasn't, you know ever heard of Jesus. And the truth is, uh, it must feel sometimes exactly the same way, like you're going out into a place that has been very much removed from any thought of God and of Jesus. Does, do, you, do you get that feedback from your from your missionaries? Oh, yeah. No, the universities, and they know it well, because most of them have just graduated recently, and they know it well. It's a place that, with a, some very notable exceptions, is incredibly hostile to Christian thought, to the Catholic Church, and they're very aware of that. And so it is very much mission territory. But it's, it's exciting to see, because because we've also, not really by design, but we've also become the largest mission-sending organization in the United States. We're sending more young people into Africa and, and Latin America on alternative spring breaks, on summer trips, working with local groups who are already on the ground to strengthen what they're doing. And the young people, as they engage the poor from a Christ-centered perspective, now they're not doing social work. They're imitating St. Teresa of Calcutta, who is loving Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. And I'll tell you, sending a young person, a, a first world person, somebody from North America, into a second or third world region for just a small amount of time is eye-opening. They live differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they become much more committed leaders and much more committed Christians and less trustful of the modern culture, which promises them happiness, but doesn't 
doesn't deliver very well. Mm, yeah, maybe it was something they experience as they go in amongst the real poor and they find out that their lives are richer in many ways than ours. Oh, it's, uh, that's exactly what they say over and over again. You know, I have everything, uh, you know, I, I come from a middle class family, every middle class family, and I go to, you know, second or third world country and these people have nothing. They're happy and I'm not. Something's wrong. And they begin to realize they've been leaning on things rather than God for their happiness. And it changes their lives. And it's a, it's been a beautiful thing to see that they can both help the poor and also be helped by them. And that then they come back to campus and they're more committed to wanting to share what we would call the art of living with young people. That there is a way to, to pursue life that will bring you joy and a way to pursue life that will bring you misery. And most of our culture is pursuing with great vigor a path that will only lead to lasting misery. If you're just joining us, we're talking with the one and only Curtis Martin, founder of Focus. And he's out now with a new book called Foundations for Discipleship, co-written with Edward Stree. So Curtis, we have to ask you about your book because it's, yeah. it seems to me that Foundations for Discipleship, it, you were exactly the right person to write this book. Well, and I wrote it with a wonderful team of great people that I've been working with, some of them for 20 years. Uh, Dr. Sri and I have been working together for over 20 years. And many other people who are on our staff who've been working with us. And, uh, you know, I think of John Zimmer and I could, the list is on and on. About 20 people that worked with us. And these are the these are the tools we've been using, some of them for 20 years, some of them for a shorter amount of time that we found to be the most effective in starting conversations with people of any age. Uh, I've been using this with people in their 60s and 70s as well uh, in the evenings with my wife and of any age and the whole hope would be to foster spiritual conversations. We are a Catholic church who has forgotten how to have spiritual conversations, and it's a very, very important habit to have. And actually, the research shows that families that have spiritual conversations with their children, that's the most likely habit that, that they can inculcate with their children that would help them be lifelong Catholics rather than falling away Catholics. Spiritual conversations. You know, and, and it's been my experience that when you first start having these conversations, they feel very unnatural and you're very shy and then once right. you get into the habit of it and have tried it out a few times they start to happen naturally and my experience has been that it's that they're very well received in general no I mean this is the truth this is the way things work I mean, when a young child first starts to walk it's not natural they feel clumsy when they first try to swim they don't know what they're doing when they ride a bike or even when they speak their first language those habits that are really close to us, speaking our first language and walking, are similar to holiness. At first, when you try to do it, it feels a bit awkward. But as you start to practice, you realize, I was made for this. Hmm. I'm, not a, I'm not a creature that just pursues pleasure and passions. I'm a creature who can pursue truth and goodness and beauty. And, and I'm surrounded by other people who can. And we ought to enjoy that adventure. You write in your book about something you call the little way of evangelization. And can you explain that to us? Yeah. So we like to talk about you know, we, we've, many of us have heard of the little way of spirituality of St. Therese. Mm -hmm. you know, St. Mm -hmm. Therese was deeply inspired in her love with Jesus by Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila was this masterful woman who founded convents and traveled all over Europe and was a mighty, mighty woman. Therese was sickly and infirm, and she didn't have the ability to travel much. In fact, she died in her 20s. But she said, well, Lord, I, I can do little things with great love. And, and so we've applied that to evangelization. And there are those who are great evangelists 
evangelist. They can get behind a microphone and speak to thousands and hundreds of thousands of people and travel the world. And that's great that there are people like that. But all of us could have a handful of friends. And Jesus did both. He fed the 5,000, but he also found 12 men and essentially went camping for three years with them. And what we'd like to say is you may not be able to imitate Jesus in the big way of evangelization, speaking to the multitudes, working miracles, but all of us can imitate Jesus in the little way of evangelization, of finding just a few and developing the habit of having regular spiritual conversations, grounded in Scripture and in the teachings of the Church, bathed in the grace of the sacraments, but having these conversations is something we can do. And when we do, we actually unleash a powerful force that we call spiritual multiplication into the church and in the capacity to reach a multitude, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of people in a relatively short amount of time, and certainly a lifetime, is unleashed through the little way of evangelization. Curtis, you mentioned earlier that we Catholics have forgotten, we've we've forgotten how to speak, uh, have to have spiritual conversations. Do you think yeah. that's something that Protestants do better than we do, and it's something we can relearn from them or retake? The evangelicals that I know are better about one form of spiritual conversation. They know how to share their testimony more effectively than most Catholics. But I would say that uh, this is actually something that's hurting many evangelicals and mainline Protestants as well. I mean, if you think about it, Gracie, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that for centuries, wisdom was passed on after dinner, maybe around a, a campfire, because grandma or grandpa or mom or dad shared the great stories of salvation history. Mom and dad may not have even been literate. Maybe they knew the story from looking at stained glass windows at the church. But now we've given that capacity to tell the story to our to our phones, mm-hmm. to our televisions, to our movies, and we've just become passive. And and the the Hollywood is able to tell very compelling stories with lots of big explosions and bright lights, but the stories aren't very good morally, and and they're not true. Uh, even the ones that aren't that bad still aren't true. I mean, there's no such thing as Star Wars, <laughs> and yet most young people know the narrative. Unfortunately, they don't know the narrative of salvation history, and that's both amazingly exciting and also true. And so we want to get back to helping people through an ordinary thing that any grandmother or grandfather, maybe with a little bit of, of refresher, could do. But Catholics know these stories. We all know the prodigal son. When we hear the reading from the gospel, it says there was a rich man who had t- two sons and one of his sons came and asked for his share of the inheritance. We all know that story. We all know how it ends. But have we ever told that story to somebody? Mm. No, we haven't. You know, you, you said the word exciting, and I feel that it that it is exciting for young people on, coll- on college campuses, for instance, who haven't heard these stories to hear them for the first time because they haven't had a chance to to hear them maybe and then get jaded or get tired of the story. They're really hearing them, very, very many of them, for the first time and finding them just as fresh as when maybe Jesus told a parable 2,000 years ago. I would absolutely agree, and I would say it's also true for people who are quite a bit older. Dr. Sri and I are just finishing up a 10-week study with several thousand people who are you know older, not college students, and the, the less than 5% have, have left over the, the uh, 10 weeks, and they know these stories, but we're telling it again, and I, I, we want people to take sacraments, it takes prayer, and it takes uh, uh, some growing knowledge, not a lot, a lot of knowledge, but a growing knowledge of the scriptures, but we want people to experience that experience of the road to Emmaus, where the disciples said, were not our hearts burning as he opened the scriptures to us? The scriptures, when they're taken seriously, read within the heart of the church, are unbelievably compelling. They're very exciting. They do make our hearts burn mm-hmm. with an inner joy. Oh, that's so true. I, you made my heart burn when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm an easy subject, though, Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> 
But we are all made for this, Gracie. The really the amazing thing is this is our nature to come to know God. As St. Augustine said, our hearts are made for you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And, and when every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth wants to know that there's a God who loves them, wants to know that he's an amazing and dramatic God who parts the Red Sea and raises himself from the dead. It, he's an amazing God, and we just don't think about him very often. You know, my husband's a convert from Judaism, and I've, I've been able, I've been so blessed to be on that, on his conversion journey for him for so many years been married for 27 years and he has this burning desire to help other people find his joy and he he tries so hard to communicate i'm going to buy him your book <laughs> well and i would i hope that he enjoys it i will tell you i think that the jewish our jewish brothers and sisters are uniquely positioned because they understand the hebrew scriptures and that was jesus jesus twice on easter sunday night not any easter sunday night the easter sunday night first on the road to emmaus and then he disappears after the breaking of the bread and appear, reappears in the upper room. Both times what he's talking about is how he fulfilled salvation history. Mm-hmm. And that was the conversation that led to their hearts burning. And our Jewish brothers and sisters share this patrimony with us more than anybody else on earth. And so they are uniquely positioned to be able to recognize the Messiah who they long for, often with such amazing faithfulness. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that you're doing, Curtis. And and I hope that everywhere that focus goes, that hearts are burning. And, and I'm sure I'm sure it's happening all the time. I thank you so much. And all our listeners, thank you for all you've done, helping hundreds of thousands of Catholic students relearn or learn for the first time the beauties of our faith. And I hope, I hope that our listeners will um, find a way to support. How can we support Focus? Well, if you go to focus.org, www.focus.org, you can find out different ways to support us. You're the first and most important way is if you would receive the sacraments uh, with us as an intention, if you would pray for us. You can also support missionaries. As I said, we got about 200 new ones coming on, and they love for families to support them at you know whatever amount makes sense, $50 a month, whatever it makes sense. We'd love to invite any of you to do that. But please, please pray. We really do believe that at least to some degree, uh, we are on the field trying to answer the prayers of parents and grandparents and family members who have loved ones who have left the Catholic Church, and we rely on those prayers. So thank you. No, thank you, Curtis. And uh, count on my prayers, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners and also our financial support. Appreciate it, Gracie. Thanks so much. God bless. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into what I think may perhaps be the most consequential conversation of all time. In the risen Lord Jesus' words to the apostles that constitute our gospel passage this Sunday, Jesus tells us, Just as the Father loves me, so I love you. We know that God the Father can't possibly love God the Son more perfectly or deeply or better than he does. And Jesus is saying that he loves you and me just as much, just as profoundly, just as completely as God the Father loves him. This is the true foundation of the Christian life, to live in the love of God. God the Father so loved us that he gave his only Son so that we might not perish but have eternal life. God the Son loved us so much that he freely and lovingly gave that life in order to save us. God the Holy Spirit is that love between the Father and the Son. And hence, since Jesus loves us just as the Father loves him, the Holy Spirit is by application the love between Jesus and us. Since God is love, he wishes to bring us into that loving communion of persons who is the Trinity. And that's what Jesus and the Holy Spirit's missions seek to accomplish. We all know how being loved can turn someone's life right side up. I remember when I was a high school chaplain, boys used to come to high school with their shirts sloppy, their tie crooked, their hair a mess. 
And all of a sudden, they would come in one day with their shirts and pants pressed and ironed. Their double winds are not perfect. Their hair shampooed and every follicle in place. When I would note the positive change that had taken place within them and ask, what's her name? They would think I was some type of soul-reading genius. But what was going on was crystal clear. They had fallen in love. And that love gave meaning to everything they did, including how they prepared for school. If that's what can happen with a teenage crush, imagine what's supposed to happen when God loves us permanently. If the words, I love you, can make a dramatic difference in someone's existence, what about Jesus saying, I love you just as the Father loves me? One of the most famous passages of his pontificate, St. John Paul II stated, Man cannot live without love. He remains a being incomprehensible for himself. His love, life is senseless if love isn't revealed to him. If he doesn't encounter it, if he doesn't experience it and make it his own, if he doesn't participate intimately in it. If this is true about the human love we find in the family, in friendships, and in romantic relationships, how much more is it true about the love of God? And there's a reason for it. We're made in the image and likeness of God who is love, who exists in a loving communion of persons. If we don't live in love, in a loving communion of persons, then we're lost before God, before others, and within ourselves. That's why Jesus says to us emphatically that he loves us and loves us as purely and perfectly as the Father loves him, because our life has no meaning without that love. But the consequential conversation with Jesus doesn't stop there. He tells us, remain in my love. He knows that many of us run away from love in general and his love in particular. Burning love from someone else can make us feel uncomfortable because we don't think we're worthy of it. Because we perhaps know that the only response to love is to love back. And we fear we're not capable of it. Love is meant to change us, to lift us up, and sometimes we don't want to cooperate with that resurrection. Like St. Peter, after the miraculous catch of fish at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we can cry out, Depart from me, O Lord, from a sinful person. That's why Jesus gives us the imperative to abide in his love, to rest in it, to let it change us and become the defining characteristic of our life. Then Jesus tells us specifically how to remain in his love. If you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love. We can't remain in Jesus' love if we're breaking his commandments. Not because he'll retract his love from us. His love is everlasting. He'll never pull away. But because the commandments are all about living in the love of God and the love of neighbor that flows from living in the love of God. We can't love God if we're worshiping other gods or giving into superstition, if we're abusing God's holy name, if we're blowing them off on the Lord's day. We can't be loving him and those whom he loves if we're dishonoring the parents he gave us, hating or killing those he created, taking advantage of them out of lust, stealing from the goods he gave them, lying to them, or getting envious over the blessings of human love he has given them or material blessings. All the law and the prophets, Jesus tells us, hang on the twofold commandment of loving God and neighbor. And that's why we can't remain in God's love if we're violating the love that's contained in the commandments God has given. The commandments train us how to love and therefore to remain in God's love. Since God is love, we have to keep them. Jesus adds here, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and remain in his love. Love, as Pope Benedict was accustomed to say, is idem vale, idem nole, a Latin expression that means willing and rejecting the same thing as the one we love. If we love God, we're going to love what he loves. Jesus, in loving the Father, loved the Father's will. Likewise, if we truly love the Lord and remain in his love, we'll love what he loves and seek to do what, 
He out of love wills for us and for others. Fourth, after telling us to remain in his love by keeping his commandments, Jesus summarizes and synthesizes what actually he's commanding. This is my commandment, he tells us. Love one another as I have loved you. And he shows us what real love is and leads to. It culminates in a total gift of ourselves for those we love. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, he tells us. Jesus wants us to love one another to the point of giving our life for them, as he gave his life for us. Well, few of us will be required to die for others. When we're willing to do so, then we're much more willing to make the types of smaller sacrifices consistent with love. Forgiving others, being patient with them, sacrificing some of our desires to help them fulfill their own, and so on. As Jesus says that the greatest love is to lay down one's life for one's friends, he immediately tells us, you are my friends. He calls us friends. He regards us that way because he's revealed to us everything he's heard from God the Father. And he has chosen us and appointed us with the awesome task to go and bear fruit that will remain. And the way we reciprocate that philia, that love of friendship, is, he says, by doing what he commands in laying down our life for him, our friend, and for his friend. We see in this whole pattern of the Christian life, which begins with grace, received in faith, overflowing in love. Jesus says, just as the Father loves me, so I love you, and wants us to say, just as Jesus loves me, so I love you, treating others as friends with a willingness to sacrifice, to reveal what we have heard from God to them, to choose them whom God has chosen, to seek to bear fruit with them to eternal life. The fruit of this Christian love life is also very clear. Jesus says in this Sunday's consequential conversation, I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be complete. The fruit of love is joy. We experience joy when we know how loved we are by God. We experience joy when we remain peacefully in that love without struggle. We experience it even more when we share that love we've received with others and help them experience the joy of being loved. We experience it even more in great sacrifice made out of love for others. Like we see in the stories of the martyrs across the centuries who were singing hymns on the road to execution as if they were proceeding to a wedding because they rejoiced that they had the opportunity to give their lives for the one who had given his life for theirs because they were able to give the supreme witness to the love of God that conquers even death. This experience of love is something that so many of us have experienced in the family, thanks to the love of our mom and dad. So we prepare to celebrate Mother's Day. We know that motherhood is meant to be one of the greatest and clearest examples of the type of love Jesus calls us to. And hence, Mother's Day is a special day on which we thank our moms for all their acts of love, big and small, over the years. They're loving us into existence. They're caring for us in the womb. They're feeding us with their breasts and their hands. They're clothing us. They're bathing us. They're teaching us how to walk, how to read, how to love. They're bringing us to be baptized, teaching us how to pray, and so much more. Only God knows the hundreds of thousands of loving sacrifices they've made for us over the years. Perhaps more than any other figure, they have said to us, just as God has loved me, I love you. And they helped us to believe that we are lovable, as they have proven their love over and over again by sacrificing so many of their own plans so that we might prosper. None of our mothers is perfect. They've all made mistakes, big and small, as they tried to raise us. But none of us would be here today without them. On Mother's Day, we have the opportunity to put into action what one modern saint called the sweetest commandment of all and unite the fourth commandment to honor our fathers and mothers to the first commandment, to love the Lord our God.
as we thank our mothers and thank God for our mothers. It's an opportunity to love our mothers back, whether they're still with us on earth or we pray with God in heaven. And wherever they are, we ask that as a result of God's love and our love, they may have Jesus' joy in them and their joy may be eternally complete. Jesus commands us to love others, but the only way he can commend it is if he loves us first and he tells us anew, just as the Father loves me, I love you. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. Listen to us every Saturday at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130. You can also listen to this show as a podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts.